It is quite an honor to say that I have with me the man who is the former national Greco-Roman wrestling champion. He aspired to the heights of becoming a member of the United States Olympic wrestling team. Yes, and of course, that's the man we all know as Bob Root. Welcome back to the Wrestling Stoop with the legend himself, Bob Roop. And I'm your co-host, Ray Russell, along for the ride. And I'll record a very special episode here this week because we're going to talk all about Bob's first tour of Japan, the JWA back in 1970, along with the likes of Big Cat, Ernie Ladd, Nick Bockwinkle, Soul Man, Rocky Johnson, so many more. Bob's going to talk about stepping in the ring with the likes of Antonio Inoki, the giant Baba, some of the aforementioned names as well as lots of things that went on outside the ring, I am sure. And at the end of that tour, with a few days to spare, Bob Roop and Lars Anderson even traveled down to South Korea to wrestle there. And you want to talk about night and day when it comes to fans, the very subdued, respectful Japanese fans, not in South Korea. All of that and so much more here this week as we jump back in time once more to the life and times of Mr. Bob Roop. But first, guys, just a friendly reminder that you can listen to the Wrestling Stoop along with sister shows like the Wrestling Memory Grenade, currently covering the 1988 and the WWF Project. You can also listen to the Regional Wrestling Podcast, where we talk the territories. So whether it's Georgia 1981 with Jamie Ward, the UWF in 1986 with Roman Gomez, or now Memphis 1985 with the likes of Gene Jackson and Steve Crawford, you can certainly get your territory fixed with Regional Wrestling. And you can listen to all of those shows and more, all part of the WrestleCopia Podcast Network located over at WrestleCopia.com. That's WrestleCopia.com and anywhere your podcast streaming needs are met, from Apple to Spotify, Pocket Cast, and beyond. And hey, guys, while you're at it, why don't you do us a favor? Follow us on social media. You guys can start off by friending Bob. You can find him there at Facebook.com slash PoorBobRoop. Send your friend request today. I'm sure Bob looking forward to chatting with each and every one of you. You guys can also follow me, Ray Russell. You can follow me on X, formerly Twitter, you can find me there at Wrestling Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. Also, follow and like me, Facebook.com slash Wrestling Grenade. And hey, while you're at it, why not subscribe to my YouTube, guys? It's absolutely free. YouTube.com slash Wrestling Grenade. And of course, now would be a fantastic time if you guys would consider becoming a WrestleCopia patron. Talking about that $5 all-access tier over at Patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. That address again, patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. Multiple gifts for just five bucks, including all of my insanely detailed book-like show notes for every episode of The Grenade Show, Monday Warfare, and the Regional Wrestling Podcast. You also get early access to many of the podcasts here on WrestleCopia, where you can listen days and sometimes as much as a week earlier than the rest of the listeners, plus remastered versions of the earliest episodes of The Grenade Show covering the 1989 NWA project. Includes enhanced sound quality, plus new content and conversation never heard before, but that's still not all. You also get digital downloads for your viewing and reading pleasure, random bonus video drops, and of course, our Patreon-exclusive 
Watch Along series, covering many past WWF and WCW events. And you get all of that for the low, low price of just $5. No subscription, cancel any time, show your support. Give it a try for a month. I think you'll like the content that I offer, and every penny of it goes right back here into the WrestleCopia Podcast Network. So please, if you can, you got a few bucks to spare, looking to support that next up-and-coming podcast brand, please consider making it WrestleCopia. Help us pay some of the bills to keep all of the wonderful shows here at the network up and running for the months and the years to come. And all right, here we go. Can't wait to pick his brain this week, talk all about his very first ever tour of Japan. So without further ado, let's welcome him back, the host with the most. Can't wait for the stories here this week. Welcome back, Mr. Bob Roop. Bob, great to speak with you once again. Uh, thanks, Ray. It's good to be back with you, my friend. Always good to hear from you, Bob. Well, I like the path we've been traveling down this far. Let's, let's go a bit further. You know, sometimes oh, yeah. <laughs> we go we go uh, 20 feet, sometimes we go a couple of miles. This time we're going to go halfway across the globe. <laughs> That's where oh, we're headed nice. this week. Well, that sounds good. That sounds good. Yeah, so... We... Uh, that was my goal of getting in wrestling was to travel and... It, it started pretty early on, and I assume that's where we're going. It is, indeed. 14 months into the business, and you're already traveling to Japan for a tour of the JWA. Uh, amazing. We've already covered, I guess, we did a, as good a job as we could as covering your, your early years, 69, and the uh, first half of 1970. Not a lot of feuds and things going on. You're still kind of honing your craft there, figuring things out. Lots of tag team wrestling, lots of singles matches as well. And here you are, heading to Japan in September of 1970. i got to ask you, do you recall uh, who booked this for you? Was it Eddie Graham? Was it Hiro Matsuda? How did this come about so quickly into your wrestling tenure that you're headed off to Japan? I'm not sure if it was uh, uh, Matsuda or, or Duke Kiyomuka. It might have been a combination of the two. I know that Duke went with me to Japan, and I'm not saying that's the reason he went. Uh, he might have been going over there to talk business with the, the wrestling company, but uh, he want, he was there for the whole time I was there, which was uh, about, I think he was, yeah, for, I was there, it was a 40-day tour, that first one, it was seven weeks, and uh, uh, he was there, because we flew back together also. Probably used it as a business expense, wrote it off there on his taxes to take a trip to Japan. <laughs> no, he was, <laughs> it sounds good, that's what they we were talking about. Guys doing coming down to Florida in the right. winter, but I don't know. Duke had a family in in Florida, and, and you know he wasn't raised in Japan. Duke was raised in Hawaii, right? Uh, in fact, that Kiyomuka, you know the the that is a Japanese name, but you know the Japanese or the Hawaiian. Uh, a lot of the kings were their names last name started with a K. You know, he did speak Japanese, and and. Uh, well, he was full-blood Japanese, but he, I, th I believe he was born and raised in, in well, Hawaii. Yeah. Well, his last real name was Tanaka because he actually had a son who became a wrestler, Pat Tanaka, who worked okay, in, that's in right. WWF and whatnot. So, yeah. Okay, so you somehow, somehow, or some way, you got booked on this tour of Japan. You're headed off to the JWA. And for those going, wait a minute, I remember New Japan, and I remember All Japan, but what's the JWA? Well, the JWA was created back in the early 1950s by the, the, the grandfather, the godfather of Japanese professional wrestling, Ricky Dozan, who unfortunately was uh, murdered about 10 years after that in 63. But the JWA ran strong here for about 20 years, and somewhere around 1972, uh, his top two stars, his Hulk Hogan and Macho Man, his 
Dusty Rhodes and Ric Flair, if you will, they decided to run their own promotions. So uh, those two names being Antonio Inoki and the Giant Baba. And Anoki leaves first and goes and forms New Japan in early 1972. And then by the end of 72, Baba leaves and creates the All Japan promotion. And then not too many months later, I think it was like somewhere around April 73, sadly, the JWA folds. But you're here for one of the last tours in 1970 as part of the first ever NWA Tag Team League here. They love to do those tournaments, those round-robin tournaments over in Japan. Uh, and it all started with the JWA here. So you're part of that tour, part of that tag league, actually. You're going to be teaming right. up uh, your partner, and this one's going to be Lars Anderson, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. But how cool was it, I guess looking back in hindsight, that you're on one of the final tours where someone was able to say, I wrestled both the Noki and the Giant Baba. Now, at the time, it probably didn't mean a whole lot other than you're working the top stars of Japan. However, you look back, not a lot of people could say they did that. Well, that's true, but there's, there was some other factors that were even more predominant in, my, in the way I felt about things was that, again, being pretty green, uh, I had never worked heel before. So here I'm going to, you know, the America, all the foreign wrestlers and non-Japanese wrestlers, uh, the ones that weren't living and working out of the Japanese company, most of those worked as heels and all the Japanese uh, wrestlers were, were baby faces. So that was new, and I wasn't I wasn't extremely nervous about it, but that was new. The yeah. other thing that was new was that I talked earlier about the feeling of sense, having a sense of seniority and lack of it in terms of my own career. And, you know, being there in Florida and anywhere in promotion, I'll, I'll go aside just for a second here. In December of 1969, like only a few months after I got started, they flew me up to Atlanta. I went up there for specific reason, they were not only getting bad press, they were getting no press. They were getting absolutely no coverage at all from the newspaper to try to help them promote. They sent me up there based on my Olympic background. Uh, okay. They set me up with a they set me up with a reporter from the, the major newspaper, Atlanta Constitutional, I think. And uh, we went and watched a match. I was booked on, say, a Friday night. On Thursday night, we went together to a match, me and the reporter. We sat at ringside, and I had been fed this, this psychology, all this stuff about from Eddie Graham. Not that I believed it. Though. I mean, I'd already been trained and working. I knew it wasn't a shoot, but how to talk about it like it was. So the first two or three matches we watched, it was okay. it was it was possible to do that. I could offer having some verbal skills, I was able to offer rationales for why a guy would do a certain thing. But on, the, I don't know, one of the matches, fourth or fifth match, I don't remember which one, and I can't remember whether it was Skull, Murphy, or Brute Bernard, one of the two. They were a tag team. But one of them was in a match, and it doesn't matter against who. But what he did was he took the he took his opponent outside the ring, and he ran his head into the ring post, the steel ring post, Right. And it's not like he did it just one time. He did it about six or seven times. And the guy never bled. And the guy never had any bumps on his head. And the reporter and I are sitting about 10 feet away watching this. And he's looking at me. I've been telling him for like an hour up to this point about, yeah, this is, yeah, this is what you're seeing is genuine and all this. He's looking at me like, yeah, what can you say? I mean, it's just what you say. <laughs> why those guys, I, I'm now looking at it. From an experience point of view, I don't know why the booker let him get away with doing that because you're exposing the business when you did that. Anyway, the paper comes out the next morning 
And uh, the gist of the program, the paper says, uh, local wrestling promoters sink to a new low. They dupe uh, Olympic wrestler Bob Roop into thinking that wrestling's real. Oh, wow. And, yeah, wow. so here I Oh, yes. Oh, I was, I was so embarrassed. I was just mortified. Talk about it. You couldn't, well, you couldn't have it backfire <laughs> more than that. Yeah. Not, only, not only do they realize that this is a work, but they think that you believe that it's real. Unbelievable. Yes. Un- amazing. Yes. So at least you sold them hard. Like, they believe you. Yeah. You thought it was real. Well, it's perfect. Roop the dupe. So, <laughs> so I have to go to the Masters the next night, and I'm walking under. I knew uh, Leo Garibaldi. I'm not sure if he was a booker, but I think he might have been. But he was at least running the show. I knew him. He'd, he'd been down to Florida. I didn't know anybody in there. And I, so I'm going to the dressing room. These major league guys, and I'm still a rookie. I've only been in the business less, you know, less than six months. You, you did a, it, was, it was just a one-off, right? You were just there for that one matchup with Aldo Bogni, I think, at the right, at, at right. the Atlanta City Auditorium, the precursor to the Omni. Right. That was the reason for me to go up there. That was an excuse for me to uh, do the thing the night before. So anyway, I walk in there. I'm embarrassed. I'm quiet. I'm not doing like I try to like, hide behind, you know, <laughs> hide behind things. And finally, uh, Leo and Buddy Fuller uh, got me together at the same time. And uh, Leo said, "What's the matter, Bob? What, what's the what's the problem?" I said, and "I said, did you see that article in the newspaper?" So yeah, we saw it. I said, "Well, wasn't that about the most horrible thing you could have ever seen?" And Buddy Fuller said, "What are you talking about?" He said, we haven't had any articles in the paper in three or four years here. He said, in, publicity, in Russia, yeah. Any kind of publicity is good publicity. So are. they thought it was great. But I'm the one that had to go. You know, when that reporter looked at me after the uh, 10 times banging the guy's head on a steel <laughs> pole, he doesn't even have a nod in his head. Right. Uh, what do you say? I couldn't even look the guy in the eye. Anyway, back to going to Japan. Right. I still had a little bit of that same attitude, but, but again, once you're out of your own territory, and where it was was meeting at the airport in Los Angeles, meeting uh, the guys I was going on tour with. I, I remember Ernie Ladd first because he's so noticeable, but the other, you know, the, uh, most of the other guys were there too. We were in the, in the lounge or in the, the waiting area waiting to board the airplane. And when I walked in there, I mean, none of the guys were from Florida. So as far as they knew, I mean, they knew I wasn't somebody they knew a lot about. I'm sure they'd heard my name because wrestlers like to talk. And I was supposedly the shooter. And you don't get that many Olympians in the business either. So, but as far as they had no idea about my level level of expertise. In other words, I went from being in like a society where I had a certain amount of, uh, in a pecking order, I was at a certain level. I went into a group where really there was no level. We were, and it worked out that way because everybody on the tour worked with Baba and Inoki and all the top guys. Right. We all worked with them. There was no real pecking order. And not to anybody it, when there was. It wasn't that the guys treated you differently. It's just the main event guys usually didn't have time for you because you're a preliminary guy. I mean, if you were working with them, yeah. But I mean, in the dressing room, the, the more experienced guys would hang out among themselves, and the, the, the less guys, the guys who weren't so experienced and were lower on the card, or guys who maybe just booked for one show, they weren't trying to get in on the you know on the the gossip and the conversation with with the main guys. You know, they wouldn't want to be like around Dusty's group or whatever. So being in that group and and being kind of having a new clean bill of health 
where I was I was rated as like being equal to everybody else. So that was very refreshing. And flying on, I mean, it started right away. Guys were ribbing and trying to be humorous and tell stories and everything. It looked like it was going to be a good tour, and it was. It turned out to be a very good one. Well, let's uh, before we get into anything, I just want to go over some of the, the foreign names that, that go overseas with you to Japan. The Gaijin, if you will. Ernie Ladd, Rocky Johnson, Nick Bockwinkel, Big John Quinn, one of the Canadians there. Lars Anderson, who just the stories you heard about Lars kind of got you into the business. So that was kind of, and he, right. was, your, he was your tag team partner on this tour. Also, right. uh, Cowboy Frankie Lane from Canada, and uh, a fellow by the name of Bud Rattel, who's not very well known. He worked about 20 years up in the Vancouver area. I do believe he was actually from California, I think, but uh, spent most of his entire life working up there in Canada. And uh, this is really the tail end of his career because he has to retire maybe within the next year or so, I would think. But he's working this uh, this with you guys. So there's eight of you. Uh, and uh, right away you say, you know, maybe you hit it off on some with some guys, but maybe not so much others. Or did everybody seem to get along? Yeah, everybody got along. I got along. Uh, I, I hit it off with Nick Bockwinkle very well. We were both veterans, for one thing. I don't think anybody else in the group. Uh, Quinn and Rattel and, and Frankie Lane were all Canadians. Yes. So they wouldn't have served in the U.S. military. But of the five Americans, uh, Nick Bockwinkle and I were the only ones that had done military service. So, you know, that, that created a, a bond. You know, you do time in the military. Sure. You share, you know, you have things that you shared in your past life. Right. Uh, the army's the same. No matter where you're stationed in the world, the army's the same. That was that was nice. But everybody, uh, the guys try to get along. We were we were around each other all the time, you right. know. And so now Quentin was quiet. I don't remember ever even talking to him one on one. Rattel was the same way. Rocky Johnson was was good to be around. Ernie Ladd was great. Nick was great. Lars was great. Yeah, so we had a we had a good time. We had a we had a good group. Bud Rattel for, uh, specifically got off to a bad start. The plane uh, to Japan, we stopped in, and always every everyone I went on stopped in Hawaii to refuel or whatever. It wasn't that long a flight, but stopped in Hawaii and for an hour or so. And a lot of the guys would get duty free booze there. Some of them were foolish enough to drink it on the plane. When we got to Tokyo, I believe it was Narita Airport. We all got off, and that was a nice thing. We didn't have to go through custom. We got off the plane by ourselves with a small group. Uh, you know, it didn't take long to get everybody off there. So we had a group, and uh, there was no Bud Battelle. We're all on the, we're down on the runway, <laughs> waiting to get on a little shuttle to go off. Uh, you know, they they had collected our passports. They were going to go in, and the company was going to clear customs for us. And they had an arrangement. They'd been doing this for years by this time, so they had an arrangement with customs there and it was it was no problem so but no bud Rattel, and so one of the gophers for the promotion got on a plane to look for him and came back and said well there's a guy in there asleep but he said he looked, said he's not this guy he showed and he showed the picture i looked and it was a picture of bud Rattel, but it was about 20 years old <laughs> it had been taken about 20 years <laughs> earlier you know it showed a young bud Rattel. right the guy that the, the passed out bud Rattel sitting back there in the back of the plane was drooling out of the side of his mouth. So I got on a, I got on a plane with the guy, with the with the young Japanese guy, and went back there and said, Yeah, that's him and I shook Bud and said, Hey, hey, we're here, buddy. Come on, let's go. And <laughs> he was okay, you know, he just he wasn't passed out. He was just a heavy sleeper. I mean I you'd land and everybody's getting off. You'd think you'd wake up, but you think. Uh 
anyway, he got he got off to sort of a inauspicious start, and that's that's the most I remember about Bud. Yeah, it was uh, it was a heady time for me. Again, the guys we all treated each other. No, there were no there was no like rank. There was nobody because uh, one night you know you might be going against the top Japanese guys, and the next night you might be going against like what would be considered the more preliminary guys. So, right. But it wrote you rotated, and so nobody nobody was saying, yeah, well I'm I'm and and plus you everybody was getting paid what they had been contracted to pay. You know, you weren't getting a percentage of the house. You know, you were guaranteed you had a, a set fee that you you signed up to be paid, and that's what you were going to get. So there wasn't any jostling around or any jealousy about who was, you know, the main event guys. For example, if the promotion had been where the, the guys that used as main events got paid more than the guys that, that went, were underneath, there would have been some maybe some hostility because there would be the the typical griping, bitching, whatever you want to call it, that guys would say, oh, I should be in a main event instead of, you know, that guy. And But we didn't know. We didn't have any of that over there. So it was nice. Uh, it was it was really uh, pleasant, especially for someone like me who was still green, not just in experience uh, in wrestling itself, right. but in show business. I mean, amateur wrestling is as far from show business as you can get. There's nothing showy about it. Uh, amateur wrestling doesn't draw big crowds of people to see it, except in places where it's really, really like in, in the United States, Oklahoma, Iowa, and Pennsylvania now, but not everywhere in the country, like, say, football or basketball, where there's a big sport in just about every college. Wrestling is not the same at all. But then again, pro wrestling isn't big everywhere in the country either. Yeah, it was it was nice to be over there and, and to be one of the boys given the same consideration or rank. If I was a private, we were all privates. If I was a general, we were all generals. And that was, I liked that part of it, yeah, a lot. And while I talked about liking Nick Bockwinkle, and that was another reason. Nick had been in the business, I think, 15 years by that time. And uh, he treated me just like a, you know, a peer. Because we didn't talk about wrestling. We talked about history and service and philosophy and all different kinds of things. Because you had a lot of time, you know, one, I remember one trip. We got on our got out of the hotel. We got on a tour bus. We went to an airport. We flew, got landed on a, a, an island, an off island, got on a boat, went across a lake on that island. <laughs> uh, we, I mean, we got off the plane on a tour our bus to go to a, down to a dock, got on a boat, a big pontoon boat, went across this big lake to the other side of the island. And got on a tour bus there, and got from and that, they took us to our arena. So we were on a, a tour bus, a plane, a tour bus, uh, a boat, and another tour bus. So, uh, My God. Oh, I, I, thank I, God they had somebody uh, leading you guys along the way. You guys would have never figured that out on your own. <laughs> oh yeah, they yeah they. Oh, I'm surprised they didn't put uh, like le you know leashes on us like like a team of huskies, uh, you know, keep us all together. Now, sometimes you could add a train to that. It'd be bus, train, plane, boat. I don't think we ever had all four the same day, but you would get that from time to time. So, you know, you had a lot of time to, uh, you know, now it was in between. But you had a lot of time just sitting there traveling. Like, if you traveled all day, what are you going to do? Now, I, I took books. I always had two or three books with me, and you could buy books over there in English. But I always took two or three books, and 
So I had them if I, if I, you know, wanted to read or if I wanted. That's a way to have privacy if you need it. You can be in the middle of a busy airport and get involved in a book if you can find a, kind of a quiet corner where nobody's tripping over you. And you can kind of get away from, you know, wherever your environment and go, go to wherever the book will take you. But I didn't need that much in Japan. Nick was a great conversationalist, and he had a great sense of humor, so we had a good time. But, so you said uh, Bud, Bud Rattel, he didn't, he didn't do a whole lot on this tour as far as uh, cause any trouble. Uh, Big John Quinn was kind of quiet, but you hit it off with Dick Bockwinkle. Uh, of course, you already knew Lars Anderson from years prior. So uh, it's, it seems like everything's working out okay. Everybody's on the same level, like you said. Everybody's, uh, if they're, you're all main eventers, you're all curtain jerker, whatever you want to call it, you guys are all the same. So that works out, and it's kind of funny. Like you said, Nick Bockwinkle had been in the business for quite a while. Ernie Ladd was Ernie Ladd. And here you are, Bob Roop, 14 months in the business, and you're on the same level as them. So, yeah, that had to feel pretty damn good. But you talked about playing heel over there. Now, that's a different kind of heel in Japan than it is in the States. No, I, I, w- I would imagine. Yeah, the Japanese uh, Japanese fans, we'll get into this later, too. The Japanese fans are unique in that you can do almost anything without get, getting them to get out of their seat. Uh, you can upset your guy on fire in the middle of the ring, and they won't, you know, their way of showing disapproval is they won't they won't applaud for you when the match is over. I mean, you would get fans that would give you like it would be like it wouldn't be whole hearted, but after you you know maybe you you won your match by hitting a guy with brass knucks or something, there'd be still few people maybe even clap for you, just out of custom. It wasn't out of any desire to do so. Right. It was just out of custom. If they're really mad mad at you, nobody'd clap for you. But they wouldn't get out of their seats. Nobody threw anything. No, you know, they weren't that kind of people. You know, that was nice. But later on, we'll get to go on from there to Korea, where it's exactly the opposite. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> That's interesting. The first, yeah, the first the first night, I went on first. Shall we go there, the first match? Yeah, we are. And if maybe you'll answer this for me when I, when I ask you this question. Maybe you can work this into your first match here, because it kind of it works into that anyway. Is um Okay. You, you're used to working in the United States. You've certainly worked. You worked Amarillo. No, you haven't been to Amarillo yet at this point, but you've worked Florida here for over a year straight. So you're used to right. the Florida crowd. That sometimes they can get a little wild and, and whatnot. And uh, here you go to Japan. Had, did anybody give you the 411 before you went out there for that first match? Uh, that the crowd, they kind of sit on their hands, so to speak, and where they don't really make noise. Uh, were you expecting that walking out there? Uh, or, or if not, how, how did you treat that? Did you Did you think to yourself, Man, I, I can't get over out here. Uh, I just wonder how that was the first time, even if you knew it, I have to imagine it plays some kind of crazy psyche stuff going on in your mind or whatever. Even though you know that they're not supposed to be making noise, it's got to throw you off some way. <laughs> think about it. This is funny when I think about it. Remember when we talked about being me being in Germany where I, I jumped up the top rope and did a shoulder breaker and all that and everybody laughed? Right. And I was so pissed off because they laughed at my best moves and I, Thought was going to awe them. They were going to be just thinking, ready to kill me, and they all laugh. Right. So here we got the exact opposite. Instead of uh, laughing, even laughing, reaction, there's no reaction at all. <laughs> yeah. That's, you talk about being pissed off for different reasons. But no, nobody, nobody informed me about that. But you know, there was there was another factor. Uh, even if they weren't yelling, screaming, clapping, or whatever, there was that. Uh, emotional, nervous energy in the place. You could feel it, that electricity in the building. 
And they were, I mean, they don't go crazy about streaming on wrestling either, but believe me, there are people paid 200 bucks for three of them to sit on one typical seat uh, that, that they're just avid with anticipation. And, you know, they wait an hour and they get a three or four second match in the sumo and they go crazy about it. But again, the same thing, nobody jumping up and down screaming. No, I didn't have that, but that, I, you still felt, they, let's put it this way, they were watching. They weren't going out and getting sake or rice or whatever. They sure. were they were watching. So I never really picked up on the, well, one time, I'll tell you about that one down the line a little bit. After Lars and I just about butchered one of their guys and we didn't get any, we didn't get any reaction at TV that that night we did in the live show. But um, with my first match, I went against a guy named Okuma. Yes. And uh, we went out there, and again, I'd been told that, I'd been, I mean, not by the promotion or anybody, I just was told by American wrestlers, well, yeah, you're the heel over there. So Okuma and I tie up. He's got a buzz cut. Uh, I've got longish hair. And uh, we tie up in the top wrist lock. And I'm getting ready to pull his tights or something to foul him to show on the heel. And he, grab, he reaches up and he grabs my hair. I've got this long hair. He pulls my hair. And because I'd been a babyface for so long, I reacted before I even thought about it. And I took a bump like he pulled my hair about halfway down, about halfway down <laughs> to the ground. I said, all of a sudden, wait, wait a minute. You're supposed to be the heel, Roop. I bounced. I don't know if the, all of me even hit the ground because my shoulders, I think I bounced back up. And I tore into him. I mean, I whacked. And I, I mean, not, I didn't hit him in the mouth or in the nose with a fist, but I started clubbing him. He started clubbing back. <laughs> well, first of all, to start the match, we tied up. I pushed him into the ropes. He dug in, pushed me all the way back. He was about, we were about the same size. And he was a strong kid, together, man. And we pushed each other around the ring and finally got in the, in the, in the center and tied up. And uh, then he, he pulled my hair. Well, we whacked each other, I don't know, probably a couple hundred times each. But, you know, we were both. Uh, we had red splotches all over us from being smacked or kicked or whatever. As a referee, I, I can't remember. I think I beat him. I, I can't remember how. But he came over and raised my hand. He said, I, I thought you were supposed to be a wrestler. <laughs> oh, I, I, didn't, I, I didn't do it. I didn't get one anything even resembling a hold. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, you had to get over as that heel character, I guess, right? And uh, you you established that right out of the gate, the night one of the of the tour. Well, I, you know what? On the way out to the ring, I had to go through the Japanese dressing room because it just was between the the, the visiting or heel dressing room and the ring. And I went through, and you know, I'm the first guy, and I'm not Nick Bockwinkle or or any lad, or somebody they would know or recognize. Your guys had been there. Not all those guys probably been there before, so you know they know them. So you know, I was. I'm walking through. I'm I'm watching. You know, I don't have my head down. I'm not hiding anything. I'm looking to see if anybody wants to say hi or whatever. And um, I hadn't met any of them yet. And the guys would look at me and just look away. You know, maybe nobody nodded or did anything. No, it was just like it wasn't any big deal. It wasn't like. I was invisible, but it wasn't like it. I was I'm certainly of no moment going to the ring. Now, on the way back, when I went through that dressing room on the way back, all of them were looking at me, and about three-quarters of them were giving me a little short bow, a little nod, like, 
because they knew that somewhere down the line, pretty <laughs> quick, have to they, were, they were going to be working with me. <laughs> Bob Roopson. <laughs> All of a sudden, they oh, said, well, maybe I better try to be a little more polite to this, this meat chopper here. I don't want to go out there and have to fight for my life by whacking a guy 50 times. So, uh, yeah, I thought it was funny, too, because on the way back, not one of them ignored me on the way back. They were they were paying big attention big time. And oh, I get great. back to my own, dress, my own dressing room, and I can't remember who was going out second, Frankie Lane or somebody says, how am I supposed to follow that, you know? Mike, way to go. Way to start the show. You know, you chop meat for 10 minutes. He said, yeah. and Ernie Ladd and all, everybody had something to say. Like, you know, what did the guy do? Did he, did he attack your mother? I mean, <laughs> why, why did you be? Everybody, they were like, and, you know, they were ribbing me. I, I was kind of embarrassed because I, I didn't get not one hold. So, yeah, it was, a, it was a, an inauspicious start. But it turned out, it turned out okay. Well, um, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah, you won the match, so he doesn't get well, you. You beat, beat the guy from corner to corner, and they, they he scored the win. So, a very established Bob Roop after one match here in, on his tour of first tour of Japan. Well, you know, going back to your question of a few minutes ago, I think it was probably pretty quiet. I'm, I don't know, maybe well, maybe I got a hand on the way back because you know at least we gave him a lot of action. Let's put right. it that way. Sure. I mean, we look like two windmills in there, you know, on high gear, but. You know, I was embarrassed. I thought, my God, you know, how could I could have been any more horrible? But they had seen everything over there. And they, there's guys, that's all they do. We're talking about Demoller, for example, on a past episode. Yeah. And, you know, he wasn't grabbing a lot of holes. He was over there. He was whacking people. So, you know, that was, you know, and again, I don't care what a guy's background is, you know. You know, a guy that comes in as a judo champion or whatever, he's or a karate, he's not using. If he uses karate, it gets disqualified. You know, so no matter what the background is, you know, you're gonna be supposed to be using wrestling type stuff. But yeah, it was. I I, I think it's funny because uh, the reaction from the other wrestlers it it got funnier as time went on. We receded further and further into the past. I would think back on it. And think about the attitude of those guys watching and thinking what they must what they must have been perceiving or looking forward to saying this is a seven week tour. I'm gonna be booked against this guy, this meat chopper out there at least three or four times. You know, maybe I better get to know him a little better or something, or at least I can talk to him in the ring or I sounds can, like I, sounds it, like you got a bigger ovation backstage than you did from the fans, you know. <laughs> well, you know, I got over better. <laughs> yes, I just get over with the other wrestlers, you know, and the guy. Yeah, and oh, I got that the, the rest you, of the tour. You probably, I'm assuming, you probably passed cross paths with Okuma again because I think he worked Florida and Amarillo around the same times you did. Yeah, I worked with him out in Amarillo and maybe Florida too. I don't recall the matches. Were, if the matches were good, like I say, I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't remember. Probably don't not remember. so much like that match, though, uh, here in Japan, I would, I would yeah. guess. Yeah, and, you know, another thing is, like, uh, the guys on the tour, John Quinn, I'd never never knew anything about him before. I'd never even heard of him before the tour, or Frankie Lane. or And I was just doing, I was doing some research earlier this week, and Quinn was a was a heavy hitter. He yeah. worked against Bernard San Martino and beat him. Yeah, Quinn, uh, Quinn was a big just, deal once upon a time. Yeah, yeah. So again, I'd never heard of him, and I, you know, I didn't read wrestling magazines. I never did in my career because, you know, it's 
what for what purpose? You know, they're they're not. It's not like well, well even they're, an they're fiction. Yeah, yeah, they're fiction, and and <laughs> but uh, you know they're animated comic books. Yeah, but mm-hmm. uh, uh, not animated, but uh, graphic comic books. And but you know that was like like Chris Markov getting hit in the face with a brick, and it goes in the wrestling magazine. He had this uh, attack. You know, he fought five wrestlers in the battle royal all by himself or something. Whatever the gimmick was. I said, why are you going to read a wrestling magazine if everything in there is is, is all promos? It's all created to, you know, to, to sell magazines. And so you can't believe, you know, there's very little in there that's based on fact. And see, that started from the get-go with programs, the Florida Championship Wrestling Programs. Uh, Jerry Prater was the guy that did all that, a guy named Jerry Prater, who was excellent. He was a very talented guy. He made these great programs and everything. But a lot of stuff in there was all created it just made up right they would they would do they would create angles or something that supposedly happened behind the scene that didn't happen at all so there was no reason to you know it was fiction yeah but there was no it wasn't my type of fiction you know it wasn't i saw no purpose in, in reading the stuff i mean I, I didn't despise it or look down on it i just saw no purpose to it so uh i didn't know i didn't know all the guys you know i didn't know i didn't even know nick's Nick Bockwinkel's background. Now, Nick hadn't done his AWA stuff yet. He was another 10 years from when he became a, like a, a real legend with his AWA uh, thing up there. He was up there 10 or 12, 15 years uh, as yeah, champion. He, you know? It was pretty much the 1970s where Nick really took off in the AWA, the tag team with Ray Stevens early on, and then, of course, all of his runs as the world champion there as well. So, yeah, but I get what you're saying here in 1970. So, Bockwinkel had been around. His father had been a wrestler. Uh, so. Right. Uh, but yeah, Nick had been around quite a while by this point. So he was established as a wrestler, but he really hadn't hit that real stride in his career where he just became the top champion, uh, you know, at least in the AWA. And by my accounts, one of my favorite world champions, I don't care what promotion it was. I love Nick Bockwell, watching Nick Bockwell work. Oh yeah, he was great. And we would go out, most of the, most of the wrestlers, uh, I went to four tours. Now I'm, I, I thought I did something and, I read Psycho Negro went like 20 tours of Japan, 20 tours of Australia. Now, his career was about three times as long as mine, but um, he would go every every year or so. And I mine, mine were spread out over you know, seven, eight or ten years, my four tours. I didn't try to go very often. I wasn't trying to get booked over there. I don't know why. I just didn't. It didn't seem important. But uh, no, I did nothing against it. But I had other things going wherever I was at. So. How- how were you paid? Were you paid by the night? Were you paid in advance a certain amount of days? How did that work over there for the for a tour of Japan back in this this time frame? Well, if you needed if you needed money, they would offer you a draw. They weren't going to pay you like your full pay because you could get hurt or someone. I don't know. I never heard of a guy leaving, but could happen. Uh, oh, it's happened. So, you, <laughs> well, you know, yeah. So they would pay you if you had say you were. I think when I went in 69 or 70, I was getting, I think, 500 a week, which, eh, I mean, I liked it. It was fine. I, I'm the top guys might have been making three times that, but I didn't care about that. But you got paid. You got paid when a tour was over. Okay. They paid you when a tour was over. That's when you got paid. Now, were they uh, covering the, the, obviously, they were covering the transportation. Were they covering the hotels for you guys? Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. Hotels and now... Your food, getting your food was your own responsibility. Mm-hmm. You could eat at the hotel. You could go out and you could go to little shops and 
a lot of the restaurants and shops or places that you could eat would have in the window, they would have plastic representations of whatever the food was. Okay. So you could, you know, they, they didn't speak any English there. A lot of, in these cities was a lot of tourists. You could just ask the waiter to come. You go to the window and show them what you wanted. That made it easy. But, you know, once in a while, after a while, you'd learn a few, enough Japanese words to be able to order food. Uh, that part, yeah, you had to take care of, they took care of everything else, your transportation, uh, your hotel. They flew you there. They flew you back. And, uh, you know, what, what, but what a way to see the world. You, they pay you way to wherever you go. They pay you while you're there. They actually carry you around where you get to see. Like we saw, I saw three or four different Japanese islands when I was there, as well as Tokyo and Osaka and all the big major cities. And, you know, there were things in Osaka. They had these medieval castles that were the basis of a uh, fact. It's coming back on the air again next year or this year, a thing called Shogun. Uh, it was a book written by a writer named James Clavell. It was about medieval Japan, about a power struggle among uh, samurai warriors for the leadership. The shogun was going to be like the boss, the king or the emperor or whatever. And there was all this infighting going on. And one of the main things in, in, this, uh, in this book was these castles that they made. They're made out of wood, like big trees, beams that would be like three feet square that you would start at the base and build them. They were like eight, nine, ten stories high. Well, I'm reading this book about these things, and we actually go to Osaka and go on a tour of the same thing I read about the night before. We get to go in one of these castles, and you had to, we didn't have elevators. You had to walk up there. And I don't want to sound like I'm a snob or anything, but to me, kind of stuff like that was fascinating. And with wrestlers, our attention span somehow seems somewhat limited. Uh, you know, 15 seconds, look around and they're ready to go on and go somewhere and get a beer. But I enjoyed it, you know. Uh, so, you know, you got to do things like that with Nick. Nick was one of the ones that didn't want to stay in a hotel. He would go out just like I would go out by my own on other tours. But because you were safe, you know, there were places you weren't safe, but you could avoid them just by keeping your eyes open. Stay with me, you'll be all right. Yeah. Uh, we would go to, these, they had these malls that were, I mean, these flea market type things that were on, you know, like four or five, 600 shops over uh, three or four stories. You could wow. go and go fishing for eels. And yeah, if you caught one, you could have it cooked and eat it right there if you wanted. So were you big uh, into Japanese cuisine or, or did you have, to, did you have a hard time trying to find things to eat over there? Because I've heard some Americans tell stories, at least especially back in the that time period that they would quote unquote starve while they were in Japan because they refused to eat the, the local cuisine, if you will. And there was, it was harder to come by to find you a hamburger or even a steak or things like that back then. Uh, well, I didn't know, because like I say, we you could go out and, you know, you could go in a place and you could get the great beef, Kobe beef and all that. And they would cook it, you know, they'd cook it for you. And a little, you could cook it yourself. They give you a little, little cooker that you could, cook and they'd bring in the stuff you could oh wow like a mongolian barbecue right. you know where you got all this stuff well they would bring it to you and you could cook it yourself and they'd be order beer and whatever and they would go out of bed over backwards to try to give you whatever you wanted you just had to be i think a lot of guys might have been nervous about being out in public okay. because we're heels over there and now it just occurred to me maybe that's why they didn't want to go out but i knew that people didn't 
look at us as heels, like they like we were at any risk being out in the public because we were heels and on the TV and all that. Yeah. I mean, I, I was out. I never felt that. I never saw it. Didn't have you could feel it when people don't like you. You can it feel always, it. It always felt to me, and I've never been to Japan. I've certainly never worked as a heel wrestler in Japan. But it always felt to me like there was always a, a sign of respect. Whether you were a heel or a face, they respected you as a fighter, as a as a gladiator, if you will. You know, they, they treated wrestling as a real sport over there. So even though you guys were heels, you didn't get the heel heat in Japan that you guys got here where you where they tried to shank you and things like that. Right, right. Yeah, I, there was that element of respect. And also, they're, they're cultured people. Some of the stuff that happened in World War II was barbaric, but that was... Kind of because the leadership, Tojo, was barbaric. They're cultured people. And, you know, English is their second language. They're, and I, I love Japan. You know, I, I, I'm looking for some way to try to get my boys over there, uh, my two sons, uh, while I'm still around, and get over there with them together. Because it's a great country. Uh, safe. Uh, people are friendly, polite. And you can go anywhere. Nick and I went out to uh, these, these uh, young ladies that we met that were like escorts, and I don't mean in a professional way. They were just showing us around. They were fans, and they just showed, were showing us around. They took us to a place. In fact, Nick and I sang karaoke back in 1970. Oh, I wish that was uh, a film. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me see. Yeah, yeah, in 70. And, uh, yeah, we went to the club. Now, the place was it was in Tokyo. And because it didn't, we didn't leave there till about one o'clock when we left. The girls uh, went off on their own and arranged to meet us at a coffee shop near our hotel, rather than walk out of there with us because there might have been some unseemly, like a yakuza or something, down there that might not have liked to see, you know, the young Japanese or not young, but but Japanese women with American men that, that mm -hmm. might have created some heat. Is what I'm saying. Sure, I, I get that. So. The girls were just very, they were very nice, you know. Was, they weren't going to uh, have us run any risk or anything. So that was the only time we ever had to even worry about it. I went to the movie, a movie a couple times with a Japanese, one time with a young Japanese girl or another time with a young Japanese guy. And, you know, it was never had any. I saw the movie Tora, 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 which was about Japanese attacking Pearl Harbor. And part of the movie, now, I'm the only American or non-Japanese I could see in the theater. And about three-quarters of the way after the attack, they had these Americans grab a couple of Japanese people living there and smacking them around. I started feeling very, very conspicuous. Uh, being I, was, the only, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah but uh, that just was an unfortunate coincidence. But even then, there was no problem. So you seem to be having a, a hitting it off great with Nick Bockwinkle. Uh, this is the first time you've ever met him, I'm imagining. And you guys hit it off. You guys were both in the service. You guys are both professional wrestlers. Uh, Nick, quite quite a you know great uh, worker in the ring himself. But we there's some other names on this tour that I just I don't see them meshing well. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean like just different ideals of how to have a good time or what to do here. And I see Ernie Ladd and Rocky Johnson on this tour. They actually team them up. I'm assuming is the African-American contingent here. Uh, how creative. But um, it's uh, Ernie Ladd. I have to imagine he was quite the, uh, quite the showman, at least in the locker rooms. Well, yeah, a little bit. Where Ernie was demonstrative was on the trains. Uh, we'd be <laughs> okay. on trains, and he, he'd be playing cards with two or three guys, and he, he would get loud. And sometimes a little bit, you know, his language was a little bit. Uh, the guys would think that <laughs> because 
you know, you don't hear the Japanese speaking English that they don't know English, but even if they don't, they know what a swear word is. And I mean, they weren't saying F word or, you know, anything really vile, but they might, you know, GD or something like that or SOB. And, you know, I mean, you got people with kids on the train, you know, all around us. So Nick and I, a lot of times, and I don't want to sound like, again, like being a snob, but Nick and I, a lot of times you could find a car on a train that didn't have many people in it. So you had some privacy and Nick and I would go and we just, we talk, we talk philosophy and just different stuff. And one of the things you talk about Nick being a great talent, one of the things that, uh, that made him stand out was his interviews or were his interviews. Oh, yeah. and, and his interviews were based on the guy had an intellect. He didn't have to scream and yell to get his point across. He could get his point across in a very rational manner and come across to being totally credible. And then all he had to do was, in fact, one of those ones where people say, well, you know, the guy's nice looking. He can talk. He's intelligent. Why isn't he a good? Why can't he be a good guy? You know, he got insist on being a bad guy, and that would get a ton of hate for him, as opposed to some guy who, you know, comes out there with somebody's severed head under his arm, uh, determined to be a heel. So yeah, Nick had a lot of talent, but he was fun too. I remember a night that uh, we had been out and it was dark, and we were sitting. We sat on down on a, a, a bus stop outside a little shop. And there was no traffic, very little traffic. We weren't in Tokyo. We were in some little side city. All of a sudden, we kept seeing this light. And so it was coming from behind us. And it would be just like flare up. And so we, we started, we watched it for a while. And after like a minute or so, this flame comes shooting out a window, uh, like second story up. Uh, about two feet of flame comes out this open window. So we went looking to see what that was. And it was a little shop. So we found an interest to it, and we went up the steps. We went in, and what would happen? The guy was cooking noodles and rice or noodles and uh, making soup and uh, or whatever. I probably had a bunch of things to order, but what he would do is where the flames came was when he would pour uh, he would pour the oil, the cooking oil, onto his hot wok. He had a great big wok about three feet across, you know, the, the wok, the bowl, sure. the, the cooking yeah, when he it was it was red hot or not red hot, but it was really hot. And when he poured the oil in it, it would light up a, and and it was great advertisement because this flame went out the window. The window was right next to the stove, and he would pour it in that direction. Homemade hibachi, well, we, man. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we ordered you know, we ordered some soup, and yeah, every time we were in that, it was a, it was a suburb of Tokyo, and every time we were there, we went up there several times, but. You know, little stuff like that. And going, again, going to the flea markets and just hanging around together. And again, there was never any danger. Nick had a great sense of humor. Seven weeks. Being on the road for seven weeks with the wrong people. Oh, my God. What a nightmare. I, yeah. I mean, you know, oh, oh. Were you Can guys you get... roomed together? Were there, was it like two to a room, one to a room? How did that work as far as sleeping arrangements went? Uh, I always had my own room. I'm sure everybody did, unless okay. they requested something else. And they weren't, you know, they weren't big suites. They were small room with a right. bed, and you had a bathroom, and I it was, you know, it was very small. I, I didn't mean to cut you off. I think you started to say something no. about Ted DiBiase or something there. I was going to say Ted DiBiase, and I spent a a week on the road with King Kong Bundy, and and Bundy wouldn't drive. He couldn't sit in the back seat, and so he had the passenger seat in the front, and uh, he wouldn't fit by, couldn't fit behind a wheel. He said he couldn't, so he wouldn't drive. And we'd pick him up from his hotel. He'd sleep, go back to sleep until he got hungry, and we had to stop so he could eat. And then 
we, that was a routine after we were in Pennsylvania for a week. It was it was gray and dark. It was a winter. It was gray and dark all week, rainy and just. And after a week, we we spent a week every day traveling with with me and Ted Bevesi and Bundy. Ted and I taking turns driving. And when we got back after the end of the week to turn the car in, uh, Ted, Ted and I said about the same thing at about the same time. We had, he said, if, we had, if I had to do that every week, he said, I'd quit the business. And I agree <laughs> with it because, you know, what a pain in the butt. Rest in peace, uh, Chris. Uh, but you were no fun on the road, my friend. <laughs> well, he was having fun. He didn't have to drive. He got to sleep oh, whenever he man. wanted. He was having a good time. Maybe he worked you guys. How about that? <laughs> it very very possible, you know. But you know, you don't guys that do that don't endear themselves. No, to you. definitely not. And, and you know, if you want people to, if you want people to despise you or think negatively of you, I mean, why would you do that? We're in the same business, you know. If he gets in trouble out there, I'm going to go out there and help him. I mean, I don't care if there's a full blown riot and there's people with bats and uh, you know even guns. Uh, if he's out there in trouble, everybody's going to go help him because that's the code. But I think that you, you're, if your heart's in it, like if it's Nick, I'm going to Nick Bockwinkle, I'm going to save, or King Kong Bundy, I'm going to save. I know who I'm going to be more eager and more actually caring a lot about saving them. Uh, not that I wouldn't care. I wouldn't want anybody, any, any of my comrades, to come to harm or you know to be harmed. But uh, anyway, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Nick was a lot of, again, he was a lot of fun. So you uh, sang karaoke with Nick. He ran into, yeah, yeah, the, the girls volunteered to the uh, the band leader that uh, we had a couple people in the in the audience that would uh, uh, would want to sing, and I, I said, not me, and so Nick got up there, and he, he was a good singer, you know, he sang something, he said, now nah, nah my partner here, and I said, no, no, he said, yeah, <laughs> They had a hand mic that you carry around. He just brought it over to me. He said, right. "You don't, you don't have to. You just stand up, Bob. I don't know that thing. Jingle bells or something horrible." But uh, uh, yeah, I sound like a frog. In September, start, start. mind you, yeah. yeah, good stuff. I sound like so a, there's a name here on the tour that I haven't really heard you talk about yet, but he kind of indirectly played a big part in you joining the wrestling business, and that's that's Lars Anderson, who obviously would go on to be part of the early incarnation of the Minnesota Wrecking Crew, the old, the Anderson brothers of Gene and Lars, and eventually Ole will join in there as well. But uh, Lars Anderson here, he becomes your tag team partner uh, more often than not on this tour. Lars, uh, well, you know, I like Lars, I respect him, but he wasn't uh, he wasn't real social like Nick was. We didn't hang out. Now, we went to Korea together, but we even then, we were together on a plane. But after we got back to the hotel, I don't remember ever eating with him or being in his room or him in my room. So uh, even though we were there for four days, so uh, not real social. Uh, we had good matches. Uh, he was very believable. We did a match one time with a guy that should have had, I mean, anywhere, anywhere in the world, you'd have a full-blown riot, uh, except Japan, I think. Um, we did a thing where well, they were trying to get one of their, uh, their baby faces to get him over stronger against and they were going to use me and uh, me and Lars to do it so they were going to have him bleed and what they did is uh, Lars had a blade on his finger and I got the ring bell and I held up the ring bell uh, we had the other Japanese wrestler tied in the ropes I think upside down by his leg referee was trying to get him out 
and Lars Lars brought the wrestler over and he had his hand had him by the hair and with the the hand that had the blade on it. So as he got close to I had the ring belt was on a big block of wood and I had it a back I had it leaning against the top turnbuckle in our corner. So Lars took the, the Japanese wrestler and ran him a four or five feet and about a foot or two away from the uh the block, he, he gigged him with that blade and he gigged the hell out of him. Because when he he smashed his head into the the block, and the kid bounced back, the blood shot in the air, and by you know we beat the hell out of him. We we pounded him. Uh, <laughs> uh, he by the time we got back to the dressing room, when the match was over, we went in to thank him. I'm surprised he wasn't getting a transfusion with the new blood because oh, wow. he had it. He had his unlaced his boots. He had blood all the way down into his boots. Now he was sweating, of course. So you know it was running. Yeah, he and he, you know, he was so great. I, I'm sure he needed stitches. I don't know how many, but a bunch. And he was, he was so grateful. Uh, he was like, thank you. I mean, he was bending over backwards, like special thank you, because that kind of thing would, would get him over over there. And you know, instead of it looking penny ante, he had a you know, possibly if he had a scar, that made him more notable in in his profession, his chosen profession over there. So yeah, it's uh, different value systems for you know why people do things. But now after that one, uh, here you got a local fellow countryman of all the people in the audience, and you're not only got him busted open, you're beating the hell out of him, kicking him in the head and take doubling up on him. And I think we ended up getting DQ'd, been pounding on the guy for so long, knocked the referee down or whatever. And we got out of there with nobody. You know, I respecting if anybody there's going to be any kind of riot or anything, this has got to be it. Right. Nothing except we got no applause, no applause. But that night, that was a TV in the afternoon. That night, I think I think the building held either 16 or 26,000. It was full. And uh, we had some serious heat that, that night because there was dead quiet during our match. And there was no applause for anything. We've seen did. the TV, clearly. Yes, it saw the TV and it was live. Yeah. So they, we had some serious heat. Uh, which was good, you know. I mean, that's what we were there for. Uh, nobody came to us afterwards and said, "I mean, I I don't think a Japanese guy would have gone for it." Well, the referee knew what was going to happen. Referees tuned into whoever was running the show, the Booker, so they knew what they knew what was going to happen. I mean, they, in fact, they probably asked for it. We didn't come up with it. You know, that was heady stuff for a guy who's only been in the business, you know, a year or so. Certainly. Uh, <laughs> and, and in fact. Uh, there was a wrestler over there called Shakina Oki. Kentaro Oki. Yeah, I always, Hitaro Oki. I always thought he was Oki Kentaro. Well, that's his Japanese name. He's actually, he was a Korean wrestler. His name was uh, Il Kem. Right. And in Japan, he was, or in Korea, he was like Dusty Rhodes and Hulk Hogan and the Beatles put together. He was a demigod. He was like <laughs> almost above being human. He was so uh, so popular because he was he was a promoter and and he had his base was, was Seoul, Korea, and he had Lars. He asked Lars and, and me if we would want to come over there for a couple of matches at the end of the Japanese tour, and we agreed to do it. So we had it a week. We we're actually out of the country. Uh, like eight weeks or eight and a half weeks instead of just seven and a half. We went over there and the way they advertised the match, they wrote, we rode around town uh, sitting on the, and it was 
probably about 40 degrees, rode around town, uh, sitting in the back of a convertible car. We were sitting in the back seat, like up on the back, like near the trunk, like a victorious general being paraded down Madison Avenue. <laughs> and uh, the guys in the front would throw out uh, handfuls of leaflets advertising the match. That's the way, and they, we, we drove around Seoul for a couple hours doing that. And then Friday night, we had a match, and there were two singles, and I wrestled uh, this guy, Oki's tag team partner, and Lars o- wrestled Oki. And nothing, I, I think I came down to the match, his match, and did something, but there was, it was no big deal. Now, the fans were different. They, they made noise in Korea, but nobody got out of their seats as far as I could tell. Because I, I do remember going down to the ring and running in and doing something. We'll get Lars, I think, got DQ'd or something. Well, the next night, uh, it's a tag team match. My, me and Lars against uh, the guy that I had wrestled the night before and, and this Oki. And we did a thing where we got rid of the partner somehow. And Lars had, Oki was bleeding. The referee's bleeding. We busted him. Supposedly, we didn't. But, you know, he got looked like he got busted open, too. And we're taking turns, Oki, he's down on his knees, holding his head back, and the other part of the team would run up and kick him in the head. And then we'd switch, and we, so we, took, we did that a couple times each. And all of a sudden, the ranks started filling up with chairs. Oh, wow. People started throwing chairs. Now, we, hadn't been, we had been conditioned by what happened in the last seven weeks in Japan to think that there was, <laughs> was going to be the same in Korea. I mean... Well, we got all Orientals here, right? I mean, right, sure, it's all might, the same, yeah. right? Sure. Yeah, it's all the same. <laughs> you know, it's all the same, but oh no, it's not all the same. Oh my God, uh, Lars! As soon as his chair starts, Lars says, "Let's go." So what? We, we, we have to, yeah. You know, well, he got more experience than me, and I believe me, I agreed with him. Yeah, let's go. Well, he left the ring, and when we got to the aisle where we were to enter. Like, the, say, the six or seven feet from around the ring, uh, we got to where our aisle started. It, was, it wasn't quite completely open. So he stopped and raised up like he was going to, uh, you know, yell and scream or whatever, scare people. And I was right behind him. Uh, whack, I feel something hit me in the back. And I turn around, and this, this, guy's, this guy, old man, he's got to be 100 years old. And he, he's struggling like heck to lift up this chair. That he just whacked me with, and thank God he's 100 years old, because if uh, he got close enough that had been a young guy, he was going to smack me in the head and busted my, you know, knock my brains loose. And so he's trying to raise the, raise the chair to whack me again. He's having a hard time because he's so old and feeble. So I turned around and put my hand between our large shoulder blades and said, let's go. And I, uh, and I pushed him down the aisle and just rammed the aisle open. Well, by the time we got halfway back, and I, there was a balcony. So on both sides at the, at the top, there's people in those seats at the very, uh, right above the aisle can see us. We're going to be passing right beneath of them. There's at least 50 of them there. And what they, the other thing is, is Ilkem did, he sold beer. He sold beer and, and, and you know, I <laughs> sold it. He sold it. He sold it in two liter quarts. Woo. Big bottles of beer, a glass. <laughs> Which oh. I had wrestled in South Korea. Oh, man. Oh. <laughs> You know, the, I mean, you just you could take a bottle and be a crotch somebody's skull in a second. Oh yeah. So, so uh, these people are waiting. They're waving the bottles and they're waving. They're come on, come on. We're waiting. They're waiting for us to go through that tunnel. We're going to be right underneath them when they get. They can throw these bottles. 
So we're not going to walk through there. We're going to, you know, never run. No, forget about that. Uh, let's not <laughs> only run, let's levitate and get through there. So You should have told uh, Sam Steamboat when he told you never run. Well, you never worked <laughs> South Korea then, did you, Sam? Sometimes <laughs> <laughs> you better run. Yeah. So Lars stopped to do the T-Rex ah, thing again. And a bottle whizzed by his head and just, I don't know if it brushed his hair or not. But all of a sudden, he was gone, and I was right behind him. We hit that open space going about 60, and we got through there. Oh, bottles there was, bottles crashed behind us. When we left, about five hours later, when we left, there was still glass out there, you know, covering the entire floor out there where uh, the bottles all smashed. We ran back there. Now, before the match in our dressing room, there was oh, 25, 30 people in there. There was all kinds of uh, big wigs, uh, celebrities singers, uh, actors, uh, officials, politicians, uh, the ring girls, beautiful girls that hand you when you go in the ring, they give you flowers and all that. Everybody was back there wanting to be seen. There are a lot of pictures getting taken and everything. When Lars and I got back to the drill, and, and plus our seconds, we, we had these guys that were seconds that went down to the ring with us and took our jackets. When we got back to our dressing room, there was nobody there, not one person. And... There was no lock on the door. So I go and I, I'm looking for a way to jam the door because there's a bunch of people coming right behind us. I'm looking for a way to jam the door. And Lars is looking, trying to look, see if he can figure if he can rip the, there's a big screen for the heat air conditioning duct. It's a big one. It's probably about three feet wide and two feet high. He's looking to see if he can rip that off the wall. So, because that's, there's no other way out of this place except through that door. So uh, I kept waiting for somebody, you know, come in. After about 45 minutes, uh, there's a knock on the door, and, uh, you know, I want to say, uh, yeah, who is it? And he said, to police. Uh, so open the door, and it's this Korean police officer. And he looks at us, and he just shook his head. He was so disgusted. And I said, uh, he, spoke, he spoke English, and he said, uh, he said there's 5,000 people in the parking lot waiting Jeez. for you guys to come out there. He said, he said, curfew's at midnight, or whatever time it was. We were a half hour away from it. He said, they're all going to have to be home by, by curfew, so we're going to just wait till then. We just want you to know. So, okay, fine. So, Lars and I, we already waited an hour after our match has been over for an hour. So, uh, but, you know, we, by the time, it was very quiet in the building. We didn't hear any, you know, we managed to get everybody out of the building. And so I look at, we had, we had watches on, all of a sudden it's, it's midnight, it's 10 after, 15 after, and here comes a cop back. And he said, well, they won't leave. And he said, we still got 3,000 people out there, so uh, we're going to have to get some more cars in here to get you guys out of here. So just hang oh in there. God. So we, it was 2.30 uh, when we finally got out of there. By the time we got out of there, uh, we went out to the, the place in the building adjacent to the parking lot, like right outside the, a door where we could get in, into a car. They had us in a car in the middle of, there were two cars in front of us, two cars on each side, and two cars behind us. So there were, there were nine cars, and we were the one in the middle. And we took off, and I thought, you know, by that time, like, there's nobody in the parking lot. So I thought, I wonder why they're doing this. It sounds like, you know, it's kind of late for this. I can see them doing this when this lot parking lot had 5,000 people on it. Well, we got about, oh, half a mile from the building, and uh, 
There's about a thousand of them down on both sides of the street just waiting. And uh, the cops stopped, you know, called for some backup. And uh, they started arresting people. And it took another half hour or so, but we finally got back to the hotel. So, you know, and the, Kim didn't have to do that because think about this. There was no return match. Why would he do such a hot finish when you're not coming back? We weren't going to be back ever. You know, I mean, even if it'd be a year from now, you know, if we say, okay, we'll come back, you know, about $200,000 each is what gonna, you're going to have to pay me. But uh, we weren't going to come back. So why, why would he do that? Why would he do that how to finish where you have a riot? And like I say, uh, that was a, what we found out. From, I read the international newspaper the next day or a couple of days later, and they hadn't had a, a, a break, an offense like that that broke curfew. So they've had curfew ever since World War II, or the Korean War, I take it back, Korean War, in 52. So they've had curfew in there for like 20 years. And, you know, if you go curfew, you went to jail. And so, uh, you, but you can't arrest 1,000 people or 2,000 people. Right. So, uh, yeah, that was, that was unusual. But again, that, that they'll come. I don't know what he was thinking, except if nothing else, what people could say is, oh, you should have seen us wrestling the other night. And the fact that a thousand people or five thousand, I don't know how many of them broke curfew, that a thousand of them at least were out, that means that was something really, really special. That's the best advertising he could get right. for the next next time he wrestles in, in, in that sense. So it wasn't so much I, about you and Lars returning, it was just about the wrestling returning and maybe it'll, just what happened, what transpired with draw. Yes. We, uh, it's going to be a wild night. The last time we had it, you know, uh, the wrestlers couldn't even leave the building for four hours. And, you know, we had, yeah, it, it was perfect for him. Because what else are they going to talk about for the next month or two was, you know, that, that night. And I, Giant I jugs see- of beer and pro wrestling. What could go wrong with that scenario? <laughs> well, I, I was going to say, Bob, when you were telling this story. You you love to travel, man, but you just don't seem to travel well. No matter where you go, Puerto Rico, <laughs> Iraq. I mean, here in South Korea, I, I just I, I would just I would have stayed in the states if I were you. But then you wouldn't have these stories to tell. So that's pretty no. cool. I was no, uh, I, I was <laughs> I was looking over some of these other names here from Japan specifically, and I, I was just going to run two or three of them by you real quick, all at once. And if you have anything you want to add about any of these guys, if you remember them or working them here or in the States, because some of these guys did travel a little bit. Adachi became Mr. Hito. He worked quite a bit up in the Stampede promotion specifically. He even had a hand in the uh, the old Stu Hart dungeon, training some of the family members, including Bret Hart. Um, there's uh, Katsuwada, who I'm not sure when you went to Australia. He worked over there in 73 and 74 as uh, Hiro Tojo, the great Tojo. And then uh, one of the names that really caught me was uh, a fellow by the name of Taguchi, who becomes Tiger Taguchi, then Kim Duck. I know you wrestled him or worked around him oh, at yeah. that point in time. And then eventually Tiger Chung Lee, and he was here on this tour. And he, too, was a South Korean. Yeah, I knew Kim Duck. Yeah, I knew him. He was a big guy, good worker. The other two guys, I don't, you know, if I saw a picture, I'd probably recognize him. But mm-hmm. I don't remember them ever being in a dressing with him. Right. I, uh, I remember Kim Duck. He was wrestling uh, against uh, Buddy Lindell, who was, Buddy was not a protege, but he was a young guy, kind of helped get in the business and uh, was looking out for him a little bit. And who was Kim, you, were lo- uh, you were looking out for, Buddy, you're talking about? or Yeah, I was looking okay. out for Buddy. Okay. And uh, Kim manhandled him a little bit in the ring because he could, and Buddy wasn't tough, you know, and able to protect himself. Yeah. 
And I, I remember I got in the dressing room. I almost, I almost lost it with him. I almost did something you never do to another wrestler. And I'm glad I didn't, but that's why I remember him, because uh, he, he pissed me off. He got away. He, he took advantage of Buddy because he could. He could get away with it. But he, he didn't like something about Buddy's work. That's fine. Come to the booker about it. You won't be working anymore, but don't, don't humiliate the guy out in the ring. So, now, what territory would this have been? It was, I think it was Watts. Yeah, that would make sense. Buddy was uh, kind of breaking in. He was down there still, still had the dark hair there early on. I think when you were there. Yeah, Buddy was, uh, Buddy was one of the reasons I went there. We haven't gotten to me being with the Papos yet, but I was talking to him for some reason. And he was, he was in out there oh, with yeah, Watts. He did work there too. That, that makes sense. Yeah. And he said, you know, he said, Bob, he said, you ought to come here, man. He said, they, they make a user. They need another, they need another heel. Not, I, I did. When I heard that, I called Bill. And he took me. It, we always say, I I believe that as much like everybody else that if you go opposition, we had already we'd done the opposition before, that you're blackball, you can't ever get booked again. But that was that was all crap. Right. If you can, you know, if you can, a thoroughbred horse throws his jockey one time, they say, oh, he'll never race again. Of course he'll race again <laughs> if he can make money for you. You know, you get another jockey. You know, you don't get rid of the horse. So, yeah. But again, like we were talking about Cam Duck. He was. He was a good, good enough guy. I mean, this was just, it's probably part of it was culture. Japanese uh, wrestlers everywhere seem to take, have more uh, respect and uh, concern for their own reputation. Like Sa- we talked about Saito, uh, not wanting to uh, short, short a match just because there's rocks falling in from the, sure. uh, from the, because people are trying to kill him. That's yeah. no, there's no reason to shorten yeah. the match. Yeah, no, until a rock lands about a foot from his head, then he thought, all right. Okay, well, you know, maybe maybe we'll cut off a minute or two here before they <laughs> cut off my head. But uh, but no, I understood, I understood the attitude, you know, and I think about it. You know, when you are wrestling in another country, which I did in a lot, you know, more than a few times, you are concerned about what, what standards you're trying to meet there, you know, to be so you're respected by, the you know, the other wrestlers. But I said I said earlier, and I'll say it again, that the pro part of it, I mean the amateur part of it, did, didn't really relate to the pro as far as performance. As far as having it on my resume, yes, it did. One of the things that I think a lot of people who had any cared about those kind of things would say, well, anybody who's an Olympian is obviously worth, you know, not he might not he might not know a jackly squat about how to work. But he's a guy that's done something, you know, or a person who's done something, and I can respect that. I think I, I mentioned earlier about Nick uh, Bockwinkle being a veteran, and I've, I've reflected a lot on, on my attitude since you and I started doing this podcast together, Ray. And one of the things that I, I think about my attitude of, with the background is that by the time I got in, at 26 years old, I was a veteran of three years in the service been five and a half years in college, two different colleges, and graduated from one. I was married and had a child. I had traveled during that time. Uh, my amateur wrestling took me to different parts of the United States, as well as you know, Mexico City for the Olympics. So I think that like, when I, I got into it, this is not, oh, woo-wee, I'm a big deal. It's just I, I had a different attitude uh, and a different way of perceiving things than a lot of guys. Because I first another thing was wrestling under my own name. Always used as I was always Bob Roop, 
until I did the Mayha Singh thing, and that was good. Because doing that Mayha Singh thing at the very end of my career, uh, I got to see what it was like to have this alter ego. Now, transpose that, and where have I been all uh, Mayha Singh? Bob Rupp was gone. Say I'm wearing a mask, Mayha Singh mask, or we're doing a deal that, you know, well, I've had a lobotomy or something, and I'm now I'm Mayha Singh for <laughs> real. I think I am. And, or, you know, head injury, something. Uh, Kevin voodooed me. You know, I've been killed. I came back as Mayha Singh. The wrestling shtick, you can do so many things. Voodoo uh, isn't out of the, you know, surprise Sullivan never went there. But I think that being able to, my perceptions, the way of looking at, at the business was a lot different than someone who got into it and became a character that was created for them. Even if they, even if they used their own name, which a lot of guys didn't. If they didn't have any of the substance that went into, you know, all of a sudden you got a guy who really isn't tough. He really can't. He can maybe fight, but he can't beat anybody. Uh, he's not physically strong. He's not exceptionally tough. He's not nasty and that deadly. He might be a nice guy. And, you know, so he, maybe he's a babyface his whole career. But he's not really tough. He's not really able to, you know, go out there and, Especially someone like much bigger and stronger and and a tough, you know, someone who's skilled, a skilled fighter, they're going to be at a serious disadvantage. And what what that creates in my mind is a different attitude in the way the person himself is looking at things. I listen to our podcast after we do it. I listen to it when it airs. I I think about some of the things I say. And I think, why do you think that way? What did what made you? What created the way you think? Because. I think that's part of it. Uh, it doesn't make me any better. Uh, it doesn't make me any worse, but it makes me different. And I think it's a way of, I think it's one of the reasons that I want to, to talk to our listeners out there about this, because I've seen it, I think seeing it from a little bit different point of view than someone who lived a, a persona of someone else for their whole career. They became someone else mm-hmm. rather than the person they really are. Uh, and saw things through through that lens, and a lot of times the people I see at FanFest, uh, they're, they're back in character, you know. In fact, sometimes even in private, they're still they're kind of in character, you know. They don't un- they don't loosen up. Anyway, uh, got off on a tangent. Soapbox again. Get the hook. <laughs> well, that's okay. There's a few more names here I did want to touch on before we close out okay. this episode, and there's some of the bigger names here on on the shows. Uh, there's another guy, Jin, here, another uh, American worker I, I did want to discuss. It, you may not have anything to say about this guy in particular. I don't know that you hung out or, or did much uh, with him here, but any time in your career, do you have anything you want to talk about in regards to Rocky Johnson? We've already talked about his father-in-law, Peter Maivia, in the past. Did you, did you spend any time with Rocky here on this tour or in the future when he came to Florida or whatnot? Uh, yeah, Rocky. Uh, I talked to Rocky right away. He was uh, you know, a nice guy. He was... Uh, Refreshing. I remember calling him. We got to Tokyo and we were just checked in the hotel. I called him. I pretended to be Japanese. I called him uh, <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Mr. Lucky Johnson. And uh, uh, I said, yeah, yeah. I said, uh, your, your passport's been revoked, sir. And he was. So uh, <laughs> anyway, I just, I was just, let's put it this way. Looking back on that, I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't even, I'm not one nuts of a river, he still aren't. That I would be able to call him and, and poke fun at him shows that I, 
I thought he was a good guy and, and would, you know, would not get mad or anything about it. Right. Uh, they had a good sense of humor. And, you know, and we worked a program in Orlando for, I don't know, months. One of our matches of note, I mean, that I, that I definitely do remember, I did a deal where I'm on the apron, he's on the inside, right inside the ropes. I got him by the hair, and I run him down. I'm going to run like I'm going to run his head into the turnbuckle. Right. Like, and what I had him do was push me off, and I went like as if I had tripped. And instead of, I go and I, between the top and the second rope, I go in between them and hit the turnbuckle myself with my shoulder. Well, when I did it, I ran my shoulder into the hook that mm. uh, hooks in the ropes. Yeah. And I look down, I've got, a, I've got a hole about the size of a 50 cent piece in my shoulder, uh, the front of my shoulder. So it didn't hurt. There's not, there's not many nerves up there, but I, I was like, uh, I mean, it was pain in the butt because about two weeks earlier, Harley was on the same card, and Harley had done a thing where he took a bump over the top and he hit his head on the, the stairs, the wooden stairs leading up to the ring and busted his head open. We had to take him and get him stitched up. Instead of being able to, we had to go to the local emergency room instead of going back, you know, being able to go right back home. Right. So I went, ah, crap, I got to do the same thing. I got to go get it stitched up. But I'm walking around the ring. Now, here's a perfect opportunity. Even when guys get juice, you know, they don't, they don't walk around the ring and, you know, like right unpumping people's face and show it to them. But here's something that's not, you know, this is a real injury. So what I was doing, I was walking around the ring with that shoulder uh, as close to the fans as, you know, like I was a couple feet away and I'm holding it and I'm making it very obvious. They could see it, you know, it's bleeding, of course, not bad. It wasn't spurting blood. I didn't, I didn't bust an artery or anything, but I mean, you could see it. It's a big hole in my arm. And, and my shoulder, the front of my shoulder. So uh, nobody passed out, nobody puked or anything, but they could see it. I could see I could see I could see their eyes widen when they saw it. So I walked, I did a lap or two around the ring and I let them see it. And I'm selling the referees counting and, uh, you know, I'd go back and break the count and whatever. I finally get back in the ring. Well, Rocky hadn't seen it yet. So he grabs, it was in my left shoulder. So he grabs my left arm. And he's, you know, I fed it to him because that the shoulder got hurt, obviously. So he, he he spins under my arm a couple of times to like crank on it, and he's whacking on my he's whacking my shoulder. Well, when he's whacking my shoulder, I bend forward to where he's whacking the back of my shoulder because I don't want him to get any sweat or you know any bacteria or whatever into that open wound. So he hasn't seen it yet, but there's blood running down my arm. So he's cranked under a couple of times, and he's got both his hands on my wrist. And that blood is running down my arm, and it runs onto his hands. And he looks down, and he sees it on his hands, and he looks at his own hands like, well, I'm not bleeding. And he follows it up. My, he follows the blood trail up my arm. He sees, <laughs> that hole, he sees that hole on my shoulder. And, oh, my God, I didn't know that Rocky gets very uneasy with blood. And he turned, I mean, his jaw dropped. Uh, I thought he was going to pass out. I had to grab him. He won. <laughs> he, he tried to let go of me. I had to grab him. Now, Rock, we're working a match. Oh man! No, <laughs> man! Don't let go of me, Jesus! You should be happy. I'm hurt, you know. So, yeah, I never forget that reaction. It's like, <laughs> but we went ahead and finished the match, and uh, I think it wasn't long. I don't, I'm not sure. That's what. No, I was gone by that time. Uh, Rocky left. Rocky left in a hurry after. 
the episode with with uh, the Briscoes and, and Ernie Ladd. But let's we don't talk about that tonight. That's something down somewhere down the road. That's fine. We'll save that but, for sure. But Rocky was uh, Rocky was a good guy to work with. Good, you know, he got over. People believed, it. you know, he was a little good. He kept his body in good shape. He was smart. He did good interviews. I mean, he was he was a, a good worker. You know, he could he could convince people that you know uh, he had a lot of fire when he make comebacks and stuff. They'd get oh, yeah. with it. Absolutely. So yeah. So uh, you know, I enjoyed working with. Him. I mean, we wouldn't have worked a long program if it didn't draw. So obviously we were doing well enough at the box office that we kept coming back. And Orlando was a good town to work too because it was fairly close to Tampa, uh, as opposed to having to go to West Palm Beach. Yeah, Rocky was good. Uh, I I saw him at one of Scott Teal's get-togethers over there in Tennessee a couple a few years ago before he passed away. And you know it was good to see him. He was uh, he was good. He was kind of reveling in being you know the the Rock's dad, and you know, you think about it, he's in a, a long line with Peter Maivia and, sure. uh, and you know, uh, Peter's wife and The Rock, you know, there's three generations of, uh, you know, really, really uh, successful wrestlers in that family, that yeah, family the, line. The Rock, the Rock has a good bloodline for, for wrestling and, and just uh, showmanship for sure. Well, he, he, he took it and put it all together and made it something that, you know, far... He saw far beyond what he sure did. Yeah, he sure did. Now, eventually, you'll go on to work for both New Japan and All Japan, Bob. So you'll have the uh, ability to work both Baba and Anoki again down the line. So we're going to lump that all together. Now, we're going to visit those tours that I'm talking about in due time. But right now, I was hoping maybe you could discuss just a little bit about your memories of working with Giant Baba as well as Antonio Anoki. I'll let you pick which one you want to start with. But I was just curious. They're different styles, uh, maybe they're different personalities, if you got to know them a little bit. I just wanted to get your take, just in a nutshell, of your time here, specifically this tour, any tour, uh, working with the Giant Baba and then Antonio Inoki. Uh, they were both fine to work with, although, uh, and this only happened one time, but Baba in five seconds gave me two extremely egregious uh, potatoes. One was... Uh, I, I was coming off the ropes. He hit me with an elbow that hit me right between the eyes. Mm. And then as I bounced <laughs> off the second time, he chopped me in the throat and hit me right in the Adam's apple. So those Baba uh, chops, those those things could be legit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it didn't kill me, but uh, both of them were you know, hurt. It was, they were potatoes. <laughs> right. not, you don't want to hit, hit a guy in the face with your elbow. But, you know, he's a big, he's six foot eight, whatever, and, and long arms. And so, you know, I wasn't going to complain about it. I like the guy. I like working with him. You know, one of the things I don't know if they if it happened this way, but uh, Baba ended up being the company ended up being owned by a TV station, and and so did Enoki. So they both had a TV station. You know, they said Baba used to light cigars with hundred dollar bills in front of people. I'm not surprised because uh, the TV was making a fortune. So I don't know what kind of deal they had with them, but. They had that going for them. And, and now Noki, every match I had with Noki was fine. Uh, one match um, is still talked about over there. Malenko and I, uh, Larry Simon, Professor Boris Malenko, mm-hmm. we went over there right before we went opposition in Knoxville. So it would have been uh, 78, uh, 79, somewhere in there. 
Larry Simon, great Malenko, Larry and I were working out together in Knoxville. We were both heels. We would jog and run, do, we'd do deck of cards, do squats and push-ups and squat thrusts. I don't remember even how we got booked, but we went there with him as my manager. What we used to do is we'd run all the time. We'd be out jogging. And a lot of times we would get to a city. We would fly there or take the train. And we'd be in the city. And Larry and I would go out. We'd put on our, our running clothes. We'd go out and be, it was summer there, I think. It was, it was warm anyway. We'd go out and we'd run the streets of the city. And a few times the, uh, the Japanese uh, boys would be coming in on the bus that they took to get to the city. And they see us. So they noticed that we were working out. And the only reason I, I make note of that is that they respected that. If you were really trying, if you're working hard at being in shape and all that, because mm-hmm. they all worked out. Oh, I mean, yeah. gosh, Carl Gosh made a whole career out of going over there and being a trainer and doing, making guys do 600 squats and 600 right. push-ups and all that. He did that for years and made, you know, he got paid very well for doing that. And they respect that kind of thing. So, because what I'm leading up to, at the end of this tour, a couple of days before the tour is due to end, we go on, we're going on TV, uh, me against Enoki. Uh, uh, now, Enoki already had the fight with uh, Muhammad Ali. So, I mean, this guy's, you know, he's world famous. Right. So, especially famous in Japan. He went on to become a senator and all that over there. So, anyway, we're, we're, we do a match on TV, 45 minutes. On television, and it was, uh, it wasn't, there was very little. I don't remember uh, ever punching him, maybe a forearm or two. We just, we went, we did a lot of wrestling, and they didn't want to beat me. So we did some kind of thing, a DQ of some kind, but we went 45 minutes. Now, I didn't think anything special at the time. Uh, I was in good enough shape that it was no, it was easy to do. But we had a referee that, you know, think about it. the referee over there, because the same guy for every tour, he's seen, I don't know, he's been seeing matches every night or average of six nights a week for what, maybe years. Sure. And so, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, he's seen everything, every kind of match. He never said anything about our matches. Like back, let's go back years to when Lars and I did that thing with all the blood and everything. The referee didn't come afterwards and say, hey, good match. We didn't get any of that, you know, so. After the 45 minutes for the Noki, the referee said, good match. It would be like if you hand me a bottle of champagne and the girls walked in with the flowers and the music started playing just for him to say good match. Because that guy never said anything, no matter what you did. So and years later, I've had, uh, even 20 years later, I've had people uh, or Japanese people that I run into, when they hear my name, they say, oh, you and the Noki, yes, yes, I remember. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it is, you know, it's nice to be remembered. So, yeah, that was, I re- I'll never forget that one. I've got the match somewhere. Yeah. And he was easy to work with. You know, he, he had some, he had some, uh, amateurish type techniques that he could apply if he wanted to. For sure. And so you didn't, you know, if you could tell us, I, I've talked in past programs about wanting to tell a story. And if I could, you know, it was a old deal. You try to out-wrestle a guy, and somehow he just happens to keep coming out on top. And finally, you get fed up with it, and, you know, you take advantage, break the rules to get an advantage, and then you build your heat that way. And to me, that's typical, like, real life. You know, a guy doesn't get a new job and go in and start beating up uh, his competitors in the office to, you know, the first day. 
to advance himself in his work, uh, why would you and, and, and your wrestling in a match? Hey, Baba, I don't remember anything. Well, I do remember something special. One of my, uh, one of my, my injuries that I got, and I didn't get, I never get hurt over there. I, so one time I got a black eye and uh, it was on a tour, was a later tour. Uh, George Steele and I were partners against yes. Baba and somebody on TV. And the, we had a while kind of immediately at the finish. At the finish, the, the TV, it wasn't at a TV station. It was at a building, uh, an arena. And the ring was set up, and there were, uh, in the center of the, of the like, the, the floor, and they had put chairs out, and there were, like, aisles. Like, if you had a clock, there was an aisle at 2 o'clock, 4 o'clock, 8 o'clock, and 10 o'clock. There were aisles leading out of there. Well, George and I got uh, separated on the floor, and by the time I looked for him, he had started down an aisle. There was about 25 people between me and getting to his aisle. I was right at the beginning of another aisle. So I went down that aisle. I figured once we get out from among the people out here, I'll just go down the hallway and meet him where he's coming out of that aisle. It's only about 25, 30 feet or 40 feet. So I get down to the end of my aisle and go around the corner. What's, what's happened is that between the end of his, his aisle, his row, and my row, there's about 25 people out there. Now, that wasn't a big problem. They, were, they weren't doing anything. They weren't trying to kill anybody. They just were out there waiting to see us come out. I'm, so I'm behind them. Well, I'm approaching from the back. and In front of me is a late, little lady about, oh, 70 years old, maybe 95 pounds. I'm, I'm about three or four feet behind her, and I'm just getting ready to move around her. And George Steele, that George the animal, comes out of that uh, his aisle, and he turns towards the group of people that I'm, I'm approaching from the back, and he, he rears up like a dinosaur and screams and growls out. Ah! Well, they, they, they all turned, they all turned and headed, headed for home. And it was so quick. A bunch of people, that little old lady, she got run over, but she didn't go down. She got blasted off her feet and the back of her head hit me right under my left eye. Oh. Yeah. Bang. And I grabbed her so she didn't fall down. Right. I managed. I managed not to get run over by the rest of the group. I was going to ask you, did the black eye come from being trampled? No, no. <laughs> I got headbutted by a little lady who didn't have any, any say-so at all oh. in the matter. Man, I'm, I'm telling she... you, Bob, people are probably going right now, wait, you teamed with George Steele? I mean, is there anybody you didn't come in contact with throughout your career? I mean, just such odd things, you know. It's uh, the Olympian and George the Animal Steel teaming up on a tour of all Japan back in the mid-'70s. And you were talking about that that uh, other tour you did with New Japan, I think that one was 79. I, I saw some matches from that uh, video in the past, and um, I was like, Johnny Powers was on that tour and things. So you, like, crossed paths with pretty much everybody who ever did anything anywhere. It's just cool, all the names and, and uh, whatnot that you've met throughout the years or maybe wrestled against and this, that, and the other. It's kind of interesting the differences between Inoki and Baba in the ring, out of the ring. Of course, they go on to run their own promotions. Uh, they do, they're both very successful for a very long time. As a wrestling right. fan, I will say to anybody out there who's only seen Baba wrestle in the 80s and the 90s, do yourselves a favor. Go on YouTube or whatever you got to do. Go back in time and watch early Baba. He was amazing for a guy his size, much like Andre. You know, before it, it caught up to him, the gi giantism 
he could move around. He did some things. He was uh, pretty fun to watch, honestly, back in this time period. And Inoki was always the uh, ground grappler, good wrestler, um, if you're into that type of wrestling as well. So I'm sure you had some uh, really solid matches with both guys here in uh, not just 1970, but obviously on your tours again. And I noticed here as I scrolled through the results, Bob, as we get close to the end of the show, it looked like they protected you. Not so much in the tag team matches. I don't know who was doing the jobs. Obviously, you guys weren't there to win the tag league. Uh, I think it was Baba's team that eventually does go figure. But they seem to protect you in the singles matches because anybody you work on the card, you seem to be going over outside of the the big names, the guys that were super established by this point. Oki, uh, the great Kojika, and then, of course, Baba and Anoki. I think those are the only four guys that beat you on this, well, it's 40-day tour over, I think, 30 nights actually in the ring. Right. Yeah, I saw that too, and I was surprised. Like I say, if the matches went okay, I don't remember them, but uh, yeah, it looked like they were, because I mean, I'm, I was a uh, low man on the totem pole as far as uh, time in the business and experience. Right. Now, again, I had that credibility of the Olympian thing, which uh, means something in Japan. Now, they're lightweights. Uh, they have a lot of gold medals uh, wrestling, and they're lighter weights. But for the heavier weights, they're very few. So uh, anybody that does anything in the over 165, 70 pounds, I'll be, you know, I'll be famous all over Japan forever. Do you but, think that uh, was done just to make it even bigger for guys like Baba or Noki when they go around you, they beat the American Olympian who was beating some of the local talent heading into those matches later on in the tour? Well, I don't think it was that as much as uh, Duke could tell him or Hero or whatever could tell him that uh, I wasn't ready to be up there with, in the main event. They didn't want to have anybody in there. They had to hand lead and hand feed. And there were some areas that I wasn't ready yet, you know, to be able to adjust in the ring to. I had Because I hadn't had the experience. You got time for a Duke Kimoka story? Sure. Why not? I mean, it's a full circle. We started with Duke. I forgot he even <laughs> went with you over there at this point. We've gotten so far into the, the, the Japanese tour. But sure, why not? Duke and I went over there together, like I said. And, uh, now, I don't think, in fact, I'm pretty sure we didn't go on the same plane because I don't remember him being with me in Los Angeles. I think well, Duke might have even been there when I got there. I don't remember. That's not the point. But I was in the hotel, and by the, I don't know, first, second morning, there's a knock on my door in the morning. And it's Duke. And oh, he had told me the night before somewhere, or how, I don't know, a phone call or in person, that he would meet me at the hotel in the morning. My hotel, he stayed at a different hotel. He stayed at a Japanese hotel. So he's knocks on my door, and I'm surprised. I figured he'd meet me in a lobby. I'm up on the like, fifth or sixth floor or whatever. So, you know, I opened up. Uh, he, well, you know, well, come in. Uh, he said, uh, yeah, uh, you, do you mind if I use your bathroom before we go? He said, I said, of course not. So he goes in the bathroom, and, you know, I'm not standing outside the door waiting, but I went and did something. Oh, he's been there long enough. I know he's, uh, you know, he's got, he's not just taking a whiz, let's put it that sure. way. Uh-huh. So uh, <laughs> next morning, same thing. Third morning, same thing. And on the third morning, he says, uh, let me buy you breakfast today. We go down uh, and he orders, uh, he orders a big bowl. But what they order, they bring out a big tureen of, uh, I think it's not chicken broth, like fish broth. And they bring out you know, on a tray, I mean, every kind of fish. Clams, mussels, snails, octopus, squid, fish, uh, eels, uh, lobster, crayfish, 
every kind of people you can think of. Wow. And and what you do is you they get a fire going under the big uh, terrain, and you get that fish broth hot, and you put the fish in there, all the seafood you put in there, or you can eat it raw if you if you like it raw, you eat it raw. If you if you don't, uh, you can put it in there. Well, I put anything I wanted to eat, I wanted cooked. So I would, you know, I mean, I like sushi now, but I I've never had any at that time. Uh, you know, you know, you're not used to eating raw fish. I was eating, I was putting stuff in there and uh, cooking it up. You know, getting getting it cooked a little bit before I ate it. Well, anyway, this had to be I don't know multi dollar breakfast. But Duke came every morning again for another uh, another couple of weeks as long as we we're there in Tokyo. And because he was in a Japanese hotel where the bathroom was down on the floor. And in order to use it, you have to be able to squat down and basically, you know, squat all the way down and, and rest on your haunches. You know, like it's easy, a lot easier for women to do, apparently, than for men. And Duke was too old, plus our knees are gone by the time. So he was using he needed my bathroom. Although when I think about it, they probably had a bathroom downstairs. But maybe he would have lost face if he used the, the public bathroom. Anyway, that's not the point. But let's fast forward to a TV. Nick Bockwinkle's in a ring against somebody. It doesn't matter who. And Duke, Duke is doing a color commentary. I've, I've already worked. I've left, and I'm going back to my hotel. What's happening is Nick is supposed to get blood. He's supposed to bleed. And he's got a blade on his finger. What they had told him was that when it comes time, throw the rest out of the ring, turn your back, and when he gets ready, when he goes to come back in, he'll do something, he'll punch you, put your, your, he'll hit you, and you, then you use it. So Nick threw the guy out, and he turned his back because the TV camera that he thought was on him would be just seeing his back. Otherwise, you wouldn't want to be on your, and you're alone in there. But what they didn't know, or he didn't know, was they had a roving camera. And so what mm. Nick was doing was he was having trouble getting, he had a Band-Aid covering, he had the adhesive tape taping the, the blade in there, but he had a Band-Aid over top of that, flesh-colored Band-Aid, so it wasn't obvious, and he couldn't get the Band-Aid off. So he's picking at it. Now this guy with the mobile camera comes, and he puts his camera on Nick's finger. Now I'm walking into my hotel, and there's a, there above the, the reception counter, there's a big TV. I'm, I look up this TV, and all I see is this picture of Nick, and then they're getting closer and closer, and all I see is his finger. And his finger is about the size of, oh, say, a basketball uh, on the screen. That's all you see. It's just the end of his finger. Zoomed in. He's, <laughs> yes, zoomed in. He's trying to peel the tape off it. And you can see there's something underneath it. Well, at the same time, the Japanese commentator's seeing this, too, and in, in Japanese, He's, his pitch and his delivery and his speed and civil everything. He's his voice has risen to a hysterical like, "What's he doing? What's he doing? What is that? What's going on?" And Duke is the color commentator sitting over there next to him, and Duke knows what's going on, but Duke doesn't know what to tell him. So I don't know. I don't know what Japanese what what abba 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 sounds like in Japanese, but that's what Duke was doing. Abba abba abba. abba. And anyway. I, I, you know, I thought, my God, you talk about an expose, but they got the word to Nick and he never used it. So, you know, it just became a curiosity, but I'll never forget walking in that lobby and looking up and seeing a finger. 
<laughs> a finger is uh, you'll fill the whole screen. Hey. <laughs> End of a finger. That, yeah. Ick, yeah. And hey, also Nick, Ix nay the Azer Ray there, Nick. Yeah, yeah. And then <laughs> then Duke was like uh, So yeah, that uh I never did rip Duke about that because it's, I think it was kind of a sore subject. But. Oh, that had to that had to catch him off guard. Oh, what are they doing? What's what is going on? Oh no! Oh yeah, yeah. Oh. He had to get get ready. They had to get word to the referee to tell him next day. Yeah, because if he'd have used it, they thought they thought of course they thought he's going to use it on the other guy, you know, not on himself. Well, Gary Hart tells this story in Dallas, you know, when the uh, the big time, they, they, they went big time there in the early 80s, and they came in with all the, the boom mics and everything up against the, the ring and the extra cameras around ringside. Uh, he finally had to take the, the head of production aside and, and explain to him that wrestling was a work and that this is how we do all of this, that, and the other, so that they wouldn't expose the business, but at least it was just the head producer who was in the know. So he kind of directed everybody else of what not to do, but they didn't know why not to do it. So, But Gary Hart said it was impossible after the first couple outings that this guy, we had to let him know what was going on. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. so you couldn't really yeah. do that back then with the camera guys and even, I, I guess, uh, even this uh, announcer that was with Duke really didn't know what was going on because he, he's, no, he no. was, what, what is that? What, what's, what's happening here? So oh, yeah. it's very interesting that the, uh, even the announcer there wasn't even in the know as to how the uh, business operated. I mean, think about if the wrestlers were exposed. I mean, it would be humiliating. They have to leave the country, probably. I right. mean, it'd be humiliating to find out that they were just working. You know, totally against. You know, the sumo wrestling. I'm not. Well, I know. Don't get me wrong. I'm not insulting anybody. The sumo might be rigged, or you know, they might. You don't have to. Uh, only the guy that's losing needs to know it's a work. You know, the winner doesn't have to know. All you have to do is tell the loser, "We need you to lose." Uh, the, the the winner doesn't have to know. So, you know, you only have to pay one guy if that's what you're doing to get him to lose. But in this case, you know, of course, uh, no, they, the, the Japan, I mean, I, my hats off to them. They're, they were, they were great people to work for. Well, that's great to hear. And I'm sure we're going to touch on it more. You've got other tours and a lot more names like George, the animal steel. I can't wait to get into in the future episodes here. Uh, Bob, but man, what a fun couple hours kind of flew by just learning a little bit about Japanese culture back then and how it worked with, with the wrestlers when they came into town and how you guys ate, where you guys slept and uh, going on, on all these different trains and planes and automobiles, if you will. And uh, it sounded like a hell of a time. I'm sure you were happy to experience the uh, Japan for the first time here. Uh, it won't be your last time. And again, we'll get into that in the future episodes, but very fun. Uh, you got to spend a lot of time with Nick Bockwinkle, which is cool. One of my favorites of all time. So that's cool to hear. And it's, you guys do seem like two peas in a pod. If I, if I were going to classify two people, uh, both of you very similar, at least in the, the way you guys, uh, you both sound very educated when you explain things. So it, it, I kind of liken you guys in the same facet. So I can see you guys enjoying some of the same stuff. But again, I will I really wish there, there was film out there of you guys doing karaoke. But that's a different story, <laughs> different story for another day. Uh, yeah, but, yeah, right. But I appreciate yeah. it, Bob, man. I appreciate you. I, you know, I was kind of wondering going in. I thought I knew I knew we had enough to cover here that where we were going to cover an entire show on this tour. But I didn't realize how much we were going to be able to to cover here. So many different stories and things uh, from you wrestling down in South Korea, which I didn't even know about. So that was an extra little bonus piece there for everybody, including myself. But just just a fun time uh, from beginning to end. I appreciate this one. Well, thank you, Ray. I appreciate the chance to be able to share this with uh, you and with uh, uh, our listeners out there. Thank you again for listening. Happy New Year. Uh, best to you for now and always, my friends. 
And I'll say this too, Bob, before we go. Uh, it's amazing how much you recall like, from this period here in uh, your very first Japan tour. So, because you talked about uh, in 77 I, or 78 or whatever, 77, you said, uh, I don't even remember wrestling Pat Patterson, but that means it probably went well. But you seem to recall a lot of things that happened outside of the ring, and that's what everybody's waiting for anyway. The great stories, the good times, and uh, your interactions with all these other uh, very familiar, famous names, much like yourself, throughout the history of professional wrestling. And that's what brought us all here, man. That's why I'm here, and that's why the listeners are here. So we're looking forward to more. Uh, next time around, guys, we will be back. We'll be head back to the Florida Territory from here. We'll have to wait and see. Me and Bob will discuss where we go next. In the meantime, stay tuned to our social media, and uh, you'll find out soon where we go next here on the Wrestling Stoop Show. But, Bob, thank you once again. Well, thank you, Ray. I appreciate it. Stay well, my friend, and we'll be back soon. All right, guys, that's going to do it here this week. We're going to wrap it up. I want to thank Bob one more time for taking the time out to share his stories and entertain us all. I invite you guys to go friend Bob over at Facebook.com slash poor Bob And of course, you guys can follow me, Ray Russell, on X, formerly Twitter, at Rasslin Grenade. It's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. Also, follow and like me, Facebook.com slash Rasslin Grenade. And hey, guys, give it a try talking about that $5 all-access tier over at Patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. You won't be disappointed with all the gifts you get there for just five bucks. But until next time, can't wait to see where we're heading next. We appreciate you guys listening as this has been another edition of the Wrestling Stoop with the legend himself, Bob Roop. Mm-hmm.